I met uh, Tiana Campbell just a few minutes ago. She smiled beautifully for me. A beautiful child. Several of the older Tolhursts I knew, but now I know the most recent one. And I do feel, after that wonderful dedication to that beautiful girl, like we're going from the sublime to the ridiculous. But this is what you're going to get now, the ridiculous. Did you all uh, eat too much at Christmas? I probably did. But besides celebrating the birth of Christ, a Christmas is about eating, isn't it? Food, family, friends, fellowship, feasting. And those group of descriptions are very old. They go back in time well before Christian period. So I want you to imagine with me Yule time in Scandinavia. Let's be specific. Let us say Sweden. It's December 21, 22, 23, that period. The winter solstice. It's cold. My wife tells me that Eskilstuna, where she grew up, just an hour's west of Stockholm, when she was a child in primary school, it could get as low as minus 30 degrees Celsius. I have been in that kind of temperature in Michigan, and it should only exist in the freezer box on a refrigerator. It's not designed for a normal human habitation. But she tells me these days it doesn't get that cold at minus 20 is about where it gets. And the snow, of course, the ground is covered in snow. And all the trees are dead, the elm, the birch, the oak. Well, at least they look dead. There are no leaves on them. So snow, deciduous trees, cold and dark. I mean pitch black. You go to work in the dark. You come home in the dark. I think they have about um, 18 hours of pitch darkness in midwinter. But then by December 25, nobody can not notice that the days are getting incrementally longer. Only slowly in small additions of a minute or two, but by the 25th, everybody can see it and know it. The people, of course, are peasant farmers. This is a time of survival. It's not a time of plenty in the midwinter of uh, the winter solstice, as it's called, where the sun seems to stand still for a moment and then start to move towards spring. But once it does start to move, 
the excitement among the Swedes, you can still see it today because I've been there in spring. They get very excited. And who can blame them living down a, what was like a coal mine at so black? Put lights on the only tree that's green, the conifer. Food is scarce, but let's have a feast because spring is coming. New growth, new life, abundance and plenty of food. Let's, in anticipation of that, have a spring coming feast. It's so dark, so onto the, her the hearth, let's put the yule log. And it's a trunk of a tree, and it's burnt slowly. Let's festoon the house with lights. Uh, they were candles, of course, back in pre-Christian times. It's a time of anticipation, of hope, of lights, of new life, of plenty in the coming spring. Now, it's absolutely impossible for us really to imagine that because our... Uh, our midwinter is in June, around June 21, 22, 23. There's 10 hours of daylight for us in our winter. The trees are still green. You can't see any difference unless you've planted some imports in your yard. Then there's an abundance of food. My wife can't get over and she could be listening to this on stream, so any mention of her costs me money. So let us say somebody I live near can't get over the fact that here in Australia in midwinter she can still buy strawberries and blueberries and probably raspberries. Our house always has those in it, if at all possible because they're a highlight of spring and summer in Sweden. We can feast every day if we want to. We can have our favorite food. I learned in Sabbath school, not gluten steaks. Every day we can have a feast, whether it's autumn, winter, spring, or summer. We can feast always. Nothing special about our winter, really. And Jesus once told a parable about a man who feasted splendidly every day. It's found in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously, sumptuously every day. There's a wonderful contrast here. The first picture we get is of a rich man with a Hugo Boss suit, a Calvin Klein shirt, and probably Calvin Klein socks. The contrast is a poor man, 
a poor man who is brought every day and placed at the rich man's gate. He must have been not only poor, but was common in the Middle East at this time, in Palestine. He must have had also some physical impediment because he was brought and placed at the gate. And I think, although it doesn't say so, that this was a daily. He was brought every day and placed by the rich man's gate. This is verses 20 through to 22 I'm referring to. He longed to satisfy his hunger. He's famished. And he would have taken the droppings, the crumbs or whatever fell from the rich man's table. But instead what we get, and it's a strong but, but instead of getting a little bit of food, a little bit of satisfaction from what fell from the table, instead the dogs came and licked his sores because when they placed him there, his body was covered with sores like Job. Then Lazarus dies, and it's a beautiful picture. Lazarus dies, and the angels carry him to the bosom of Abraham. That language you will recall immediately from the Lord's Supper in John 13, that the beloved's disciple had his head on Jesus' bosom. This is just language that shouldn't be taken too literal anymore, Pastor Tollis, than the ten times wiser should be. I think he's right. Certainly not ten times fatter. That's not healthy. Um, I'm getting astray, aren't I, from the Sabbath school lesson, still thinking about it. Um, he's, uh, it means that he's beside him, and it means it's a feast situation, and it means he's in next to the guest of honor, the chief seat. You remember the, the mother of uh, two of the disciples wanted her boys, on one on the right, that was the top seat, and one on the left, the second top seat, at a feast. So there he is carried by the angels into the very presence of Abraham, takes up a position right beside him to enjoy the food together in the heavenly feast. In contrast, Jesus' language about the rich man is quite terse. He died and was buried, full stop. He died and was buried, bang, end of it. But there is, in verse 23, a great reversal of locations. The rich man knew that God had richly blessed him in this life, and he expected that to continue in the afterlife. What a shock to discover his lot after death. Although, that's my translation, although he was in torment, he managed to lift up his eyes. And what did he see? He saw Abraham, but afar off, and not near him. And near him is this poor man named Lazarus. What a shock that was. 
and Lazarus literally in his bosoms in the plural but it means close beside him in a feast in an eating situation so the rich man who is unnamed in verse 24 makes what I consider a modest plea it was so hot he says to Abraham I imagine he has to shout because Abraham's afar off Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Perhaps a better translation is have pity. Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and just with a fingertip that's been wet, put it on my tongue to bring just that minute piece of relief. For I am in torment in this flame. It is in singular. The Good News Bible translates it in this fire, which I think is probably a pretty good translation. He's not talking about the flame of a single candle or a terracotta lamp. He's talking more like what's happening down in South New South Wales and Victoria, where those flames have come together to form one huge holocaust God be with them down there for I am in torment in this fire so we're looking at a great reversal a theme that's fairly common both in Jewish and non-Jewish writers in verses 25 and 26 Abraham responded so Abraham responds to this modest plea just of Lazarus putting a finger in a cup of water, uh, putting it on his tongue. Child, he says. Child. A very gentle term of address. Uh, you remember the father in uh, the prodigal son story in, in Luke 15. When he goes out to the elder son, he says, child. I think he might even say, my child. Abraham doesn't say that, just child. But it's a gentle greeting. Child, remember, you got your good things in your lifetime. But Lazarus got bad things in his lifetime. But now here, very strong but, but now here, you he is comforted, but you are in great pain. This is verse 25. Besides, he says, there's a great gulf or chasm or pit between us and you. The interesting thing is, you there is in the plural. How do I get that? You all, I suppose. You all. Uh, then you all. So the rich man isn't there by himself. There are lots of others. You, plural. You know, I could use the, what the children use to come, overcome this problem of not having a singular you. Uh, we should have kept thou, in my opinion. We need a singular you. Well, the kids solve that problem by saying, well, you put an S on a noun to 
make a plural. They don't know that it's a noun, but they, they know what happens. If you want to say boys, you add an S to boy. So they add an S to a pronoun. Very naughty, but at least it gives you a plural form. Use between us and use there is a great gulf fixed. So that, with this result, that those wishing to come from here to you, again in plural, to use, are unable to do so. And nor are they able to cross from where you are, rich man, to us over here where Abraham and Lazarus are. Huge gulf fixed and there's no traversing it. So Lazarus can't even do a modest piece of charity by wetting your tongue. Well, so the rich man now makes an earnest plea. A modest plea is now escalated to an earnest plea, a desperate plea, in verses 27 to 31. The rich man's earnest plea is this, Father, Father Abraham, send him, send him, who's the him? Send him. Lazarus, yes. Send him, Lazarus, to my father's home. Because in my father's home, I have five brothers. So send Lazarus to my father's home to warn my five brothers, lest they also end up in this place of torment. A very evangelistic concern one would think. But Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. They have Moses and the prophets. Now, I don't know about you, but I did not expect to find a reference to Moses in a parable of Jesus. But there it is. There it is. No, Father Abraham, says the rich man, traditionally known as dives, but it's not biblical. No, Father Abraham, we need more than that. Moses and the prophets is not enough. If someone goes from the dead to them, they will repent. And Abraham replied, if they do not listen to, I want something a bit stronger than that, if they do not hearken to, it's a bit old-fashioned, I guess, but it captures it, if they do not hearken to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, you notice we've moved from specific, him, Lazarus, to someone. So as a Christian, it's very difficult not to read the resurrection of Jesus in that passage I just read in verses 27 to 31. 
and that was 31 I just read. They will not be persuaded. They will not be convinced even if someone very general rises from the dead. So we still need to hear Moses and the prophets apparently even though Jesus has risen from the dead. And it's one thing to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead but not listen to Moses and the prophets. We might miss out on something that Jesus clearly in this parable wanted us to hear. What is there in Moses and the prophets that the five brothers needed to hear, to listen to, to hearken to, and us as well? Jesus is directing us to Moses. I'm reading from Exodus 22:25. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. That's Exodus 22:25. Leviticus 19:10. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien, the refugee, if you like. I am the Lord your God, Leviticus 19.10. Now you might say, I don't have a vineyard, so <laughs> I'm off that hook. I think the Lord expects us to be able to extrapolate from a text like that into our own situations. He wants us to be caring of those who need our caring. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribes, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the alien, providing them with food and clothing, Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 18. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth. I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and the needy in your land. That's Deuteronomy 15, 11. If you're not starting to feel a bit uncomfortable, you are not listening to Moses because it really hits home, doesn't it? It does to me anyway. Cursed be anyone who deprives the alien, the orphan, the widow of justice. And all the people shall say, Amen. That's Deuteronomy 27, 19. I'm told that Isaiah 58, I've never checked it out, but I'm told by those who are experts in this area, that Isaiah 58 is one of the chapters Ellen White quotes most frequently. And I'm just going to quote one little part of it. 
Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them? Isaiah 58, 6 to 7. So is that all the parable is about? As simple as that. Just about being generous to the poor. Well, it's simple to hear. It's jolly hard to do. It's difficult in practice. Simple to hear. But yes, the message of this passage is as simple as that. The parable reflects common stories found in Jewish and pagan sources where somebody visits the place of the dead and finds that there's been a big reversal. Very common. You can find them going right back to uh, Plato in the uh, non-Jewish sources, but also common in Jewish sources, and there's a famous one that originated in Egypt. It's like stories we've all heard, and in my case, used, and there's a number of pastors here. Uh, they may have used them as well. Stories about somebody dying and going to heaven and meeting Peter at the pearly gates. Have any of you ever heard such a story? Have you heard it from the pulpit? Do you, when you, the preacher walks out the door, grab him and say, that's not the truth. When we die, we go to the grave. There's no immortal soul. That's heresy. I, I don't mind them when they just grab me by the arm like the ancient mariner, but my throat, I, I find that's a bit over the top. <laughs> it's only a story, I say. It's only a story. Get the point of the story. Don't take everything about the story. And this is no more a picture of the afterlife either. Clearly, Jesus is telling a story, one that's fairly widely known in various forms among his audience to make a point. Like all Jesus' teaching, its focus is not on the future. Even when Jesus is talking about the future, the focus is on the now. Eschatology, whew, big word this early in the day, Eschatology, think about the last things, is not just so we can all become seers or prophets and be able to predict everything that's going to happen. It's so that what we know about God's future can impact on our life today. If we're looking for a kingdom where God's righteousness reigns, then we ought to be letting righteousness reign now. If we want a new earth, we better be picking up the plastic bottles and not just for the 10 cents, although I do it for the 10 cents as well, for my granddaughter. Just notice that this is a very much a theme of Luke, the concern for the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, says Jesus in the Capernaum sermon that he preached. 
when he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Luke 4.18 Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Luke 6.20 The poor have good news brought to them. Luke 7.22 That's a message back to John the Baptist, you remember. Are you the promised one? Are you the coming Messiah? Tell him that good news is being preached to the poor, the crippled are walking, the blind are seeing. Go back and tell him that. The messianic reign has started. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And as I say, I think Lazarus, because he was brought and placed by the gate, probably was in the category of being crippled or lame. That was Luke 14, 13. Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Luke 14, 21. Those who are first invited make the excuses. Go out and gather in those who need a royal feast. Sell all you own and distribute the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Luke 18, 22. Now that's the rich young ruler and you might say that doesn't apply to me. All right, we'll try this one. Luke 12, 21. And this is in the parable of the rich fool. So it is with those who store up treasure for themselves but are not rich towards God. How do you be rich towards God? You do not store up by building more barns to put in more gatherings. You give to the needy and the poor. That's how you're rich towards God. Sell your possessions and give arms. Arms is not A-R-M-S, not rifles, but A-L-M-S, donations. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven. Same language as 1221. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there is your heart also. I would have put it the other way around. Where your heart is, that's where you'll put your money. But Jesus says, you want to know where your heart is? Look at the check butts. Follow the money. And you'll know where your heart is. That's Luke 12, 33 to 34. And Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. Luke 19, 8. So I think we can see that Luke 16, 19 to 31 fits into a theme of Luke's gospel. I tell you, and I'm reading from Luke 12, 9 and 11 in the New English Version, a New International Version. I tell you, use worldly wealth, literally mammon. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends in heaven for yourselves 
so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches? Luke 12, 9 and 11. So yes, to hear Moses and the prophets in the context of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is to hear the message of giving to help the poor. Now you might say, not a lot of gospel there, just action, doing things, true, true. So let me just finish on one other text, one of my favorites, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Though he were rich, for your sakes and mine, he became poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. He's not talking about success on the stock market. Rich in the things of heaven. Amen.